0: You know, often our own personal suffering or the amount of injustice we see in society can lead us to doubt God, doubt whether God is listening, doubt whether God cares, doubt whether God has the power to to move and act in this world. Um, Perhaps we even just find it in the utterly implausible that a good God can really exist if life is so broken. Um, So perhaps... If we feel that way, we set about trying to fix the world ourselves. Or if that seems too overwhelming, then maybe we just set about medicating the pain that we feel in life instead of dealing with it. And that's really how we come to this book. Uh, The the people of God in Habakkuk are are struggling, right? They are under oppression from Assyrians. Uh, They are not sure where the God is for them, and they bring all these questions uh, to, to God. And often we, we bring those kind of questions to God ourselves. A little bit about just the background and the context of the book of Habakkuk and the prophet himself. Really little is known about the prophet Habakkuk. He is likely to be contemporaries with Zephaniah and Jeremiah, perhaps even Ezekiel and Daniel, but that's about all we know. Uh, the book of Habakkuk was, was written no later than the reign, the end of King Josiah's reign. And at that time in Israel's history, Israel, the northern kingdom, had already separated from Judah, uh, one tribe of Judah, and there, was, there had been civil war, and, and uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, essentially had abandoned following God, and Judah was still trying to hang on, and um, Josiah brought about a great revival uh, through his reign. And leading up to it, one commentary said that Judah was already... Morally and spiritually corrupt, worshiping Baal on the high places, offering its children to Moloch, a pagan god, dedicating horses to the sun god, and allowing the temple to fall into ruin. So that was the state of Judah as Josiah came into reign. And he brought, again, great revival, um, demolishing uh, the shrines to the pagan gods, stopping those practices, restoring the temple, reinstituting the feast of the Passover, uh, you know, obviously a, a key. Uh, festivity for the Israelites in terms of recognizing, again, the power of God, the existence of God, the God who is the deliverer. So again, though, it's times in Judah, though, uh, were politically turbulent. They were, again, under the, under the rule of Assyria, and Assyria ruled with, with a heavy hand. They were, they were cruel. Um, there was a lot of punishment. There was tribute in terms of taxes being taken from them. And uh, there was this threat of uh, Babylon taking over from Assyria. And so there wasn't really a lot of hope for Judah in terms of being set free again to worship God in the way that they believed they were called to worship. And there were false, pro- false prophets in Judah who were telling uh, the, the, the people of Judah, you're fine. Like God is not going to punish you. You're the chosen people. And so the prophet Habakkuk's message was really gonna, gonna not, fall on, uh, not fall well on, on the audience because you know, this is just kind of a human condition. We would all rather hear positive news than hear a Debbie Downer say, hey, turn back to God or judgment may come. And this book is really interesting in that it really reads almost like a personal journal. It's a very uh, almost autobiographically written book and the structure of the book is simply this. Habakkuk complains. God answers, Habakkuk complains, God answers, and then Habakkuk prays. That's how the book ends. And so we're going to walk through uh, that over the course of this series, and we're just going to look at today uh, Habakkuk's first complaint and then God's answer to that complaint. One key thing to note about um, the the word wicked in verse 4, who does that refer to? Uh, In verse 4, the wicked refers to some group of people in Judah who God considers the wicked, who are, have really uh, abandoned following God. Later on in the book, wicked is gonna refer to a foreign nation, but here in our context as we read it in today's verses, the wicked's referring to a group of, of uh, Israelites within Judah who have really abandoned God. And so I found it really interesting, just looking at these first few verses, how true to life the questions were, and how they even, and I don't know how intentional this was, Uh, but at least it maps out with how I see doubts come up in our lives. It it maps out how a progression of doubts we often end up having of God as we go through times of suffering again ourselves or just seeing injustice in this world. And Habakkuk is giving voice to those kinds of questions and doubts that I think we all have. So we look at verse 2. It says, "'O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear?' This basic question that we often turn to ourselves, is God listening? Is God listening? We we often go first to this, just questioning God's either ability or willingness to listen to our prayers. Habakkuk is lamenting and crying out that it feels like God is is not listening, and he's been crying out for such a long time, and yet it seems like God has not answered. And we, we often ask the same thing. God, are you busy? God, are you in the bathroom? Where are you, God? Our logic then is, if God hears us, then surely he would have done something by now. I would not still be in this place, or our country would still not be in this place. Surely things would have changed. But after wrestling through that question, is God listening? We often come to believe or realize again, okay, no, God is a God who hears us, who hears our prayers. And so then our next question um, in verse 2b is, or cry to you violence and you will not save. This question of, okay, God, you hear me, but do you care, right? I see this violence. Do you not care when you see the violence in this world? We question God's heart. Do you care, God? We think God is listening, but again, we're not sure whether he cares even though He hears and He sees what is going on, we, we ask God again, "Do you not care, God? Do you not love us? Have you given up on us? And again, our logic here is, if God cares, He would do something by now, surely. And we wrestle with that for a while, and we again, we come back to this place of believing. No, I believe in a God who listens, who hears my prayers. I believe in a God who cares. And then we end up in verse three. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? This question and this doubt, will God act? He hears, he cares, will he act? Is he powerful enough to deal with the problems around us? So we question God's power to bring about justice for us in our lives. And maybe we think God is not able to act And maybe we even try to find reasons for why God is not powerful enough to act. Habakkuk is saying, he can't bear seeing all of this injustice and violence around him. And if he can't bear to look upon it anymore, why would God look upon it and not take action? God, why are you just sitting on your butt doing nothing? Is the question that we often end up with. Perhaps we think it is beyond God's control that God is not powerful enough to deal with whatever that injustice or suffering we're going through. Perhaps we think God is like an absent father who's abdicated responsibility. Our logic, again, is if God is powerful enough, then surely he would have done something by now. Is God listening? Does God care? Will he act? This series of question often ruminates through our hearts when we're struggling with personal suffering or struggling with seeing the injustice around us. Now, Habakkuk continues. He really doesn't stop, right? There's just two and a half verses there, one and a half verses there. 3B, he continues with his complaint to God. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous. Again, the wicked referring to some group of people of God in Judah. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. This phrase is really powerful. Perverted justice, a perversion of justice. That's what uh, Habakkuk is complaining to God. Justice has been perverted, God. Are you not the God of justice? Are you not a just God? Will you not do something, God? You know, we live in times where talk of justice is very, very prominent, and really it comes from all corners. It doesn't matter the way you consider yourself, progressive or conservative or libertarian or, or green, from whatever corner you come from, whatever perspective, there's this cry for justice, for things to be made right in this world. And it's interesting, with that call for justice, there comes a call also of hypocrisy, Because that's the easiest attack to make of people you don't agree with. You're a hypocrite. You say this is what justice is, but you don't even follow it yourself. And it's true. No matter what perspective we come from, we cry justice, and yet we are just as easily guilty of hypocrisy at the same time. It's hard to follow even our own stated sense of justice, forget trying to follow God's standard of justice. Perhaps you can all relate in some ways to Habakkuk's complaint. Perhaps you're overwhelmed with injustice in this country or in this world. Perhaps again, you yourself have experienced or are experiencing such suffering that you wonder and cry out to God, how long, God, how long, God? And perhaps you are questioning and doubting God as a result. Well, let's hear how the Lord answers. And I'm just going to go through it quickly, because it really is just making one point. Um, Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. God is saying, I'm going to work in an unexpected way beyond what you think. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation These are referring to the cruel neo-Babylonians who will bring justice against the Assyrian oppressors, their current Assyrian uh, oppressors, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. This is actually God condemning them, saying they are making up their own justice. They are making up their own laws rather than abiding by God's laws. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. Get this picture painted of this ominous military force that these Neo-Babylonians are, and they're ready to strike at any time with great speed. And this last phrase, they gather captives like sand, would have stood out particularly to the Israelites because what would have rung in their ears was the promise of God to Abraham that Abraham's descendants will be like the sands. And so the blessing has been reversed here. The language of blessing of sand has been reversed to being captives so great in number like the sand. Verse 10, at kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh, They laugh at every fortress for they pile up earth and take it. I mean, these, again, these cruel neo-Babylonians are making fun of any opponent they face, the kings that they face, the fortresses that they intend to tear down and laugh at the puny defenses. Verse 11, then they sweep by like wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. This last phrase whose own might, guilty men whose own might is their God, is this key condemnation of God upon those Neo-Babylonians. They're so enamored with their own strength, with their own power, that they've become worshipers of themselves, of their own might, and have completely ignored the creator God who made them. Let's face it, right? Again, put yourself in the shoes of Habakkuk. Imagine you have thrown out your complaint to God, and God answers with this answer. How good are you going to feel? Not so good. You're going to be like, really, God? That's your answer to my complaint? (laughs) Your answer is you're going to replace one oppressor with an even more cruel oppressor? My cry for justice is you're going to use an even more unrighteous people to bring about justice. How is that possible, God? The answer is not what Habakkuk is looking for, is not an answer that we look for. If you've read the book of Job, I imagine your first reaction to God's answer to Job is, really? That's your answer, God? Can, can you give me a better apologetic than that? not very convincing, God is essentially saying, don't worry, I'm in control, trust me. I know it doesn't make sense to you, but trust me. And we've never liked that kind of answer from God, right? We want something much more sophisticated, much more nuanced, gets at the heart of what we're complaining about, and yet God says, don't worry, I'm in control, I know it doesn't make sense to you. Trust me. And we try to deal with, wrestle with the existence of suffering and evil in this world and the existence of God. At least, I think the majority of us in here believe in the existence of God. And here are often the ways we respond as humanity anyway. We could respond with um, uh, an atheistic point of view, which is it's all just random events, right? It's all just random. There's no God. Let's just make the most of this life. Let's try to do what seems good for humanity. Let's make the most of it. Or perhaps our, our response in the midst of suffering is just positive thinking, right? It's not that bad. You know, let's just try to focus on the positive, and, and, and we can do better. We can make things better. You know, even focus on positive spiritual things. We can make things better. Or perhaps our response to this problem of suffering and the existence of God is a is, uh, Open theism, you may not know what open theism is, is again, it's a group of theologians who are trying to wrestle with the problem of evil and the existence of God, and they essentially are saying, God doesn't know the future. God does not have absolute power. God is, yes, more powerful than us, but he's just working together with us to create a new future. So it's not that bad. Let's just work together with God to create a better future that God does not know, which sounds great. It's great to like uh, let God off the hook, so to speak. But if we say we believe in scripture, that does not seem to be the picture of God that is painted in scripture, that God doesn't know the future, that God's just making it up with us as we go. Perhaps the response to this problem of Suffering and evil and the existence of God is is a, a Christian one, in the sense of an Arminian one, an emphasis on on man's choice, where we say yes, it's bad, suffering is bad, evil is bad in this world, but that's the price we pray. Pay, that's the price we pay for having free will, and so let's all do better individually. Let's trust in God and convert souls and wait for heaven, and God will bring about a better place. And that's one way to say, okay, there's, there's suffering and evil because of free will. Or perhaps it's the, the Reformed perspective which answers this question this way. And I acknowledge that all, all, all that I've just said may be a little oversimplified. But the Reformed answer with this emphasis of God being in control, believing that Scripture teaches that, is to say, yes, it really is that bad suffering and evil really is that bad. And yet, God is patiently at work to fulfill his promises, to bring about justice, and to restore this world, this creation, this humanity to God. I don't know for you which one of those you resonated with as you wrestle with this idea of why does suffering and evil exist if God is good. And I think Habakkuk's I mean, God's answer to Habakkuk really fits best with a reformed perspective. But honestly, regardless of whether you come from that perspective, God's answer is really jarring. It doesn't meet that place in our heart that is looking for an answer. God's response to Habakkuk's complaint is essentially this. You think I'm not doing anything? I will bring justice in the most unexpected way is God's answer. God's answer is I will use even what you think is the worst thing to bring about justice. Again, if you were an Israelite in that time longing for deliverance from oppression and restoration of the temple and restoration of Israel as a nation, this answer of, okay, God's going to deal with the Syrians, but by bringing in an even worse oppressor, that would not be the answer you would hope for. You would hope that God would say he would give back the autonomy of Israel and the worship of Israel in the way that God had stated in, in the Old Testament all along. You would not be satisfied with this answer from God. One commentator said about the book of Habakkuk, he says, although Habakkuk addressed Five woes to Babylon, his primary message was one of commitment to Yahweh, even when a cruel, godless tyrant was poised on the border, ready to overrun one's land. How do we get to that place of commitment to God, even when things don't make sense to us? It didn't make sense to the Israelites when they heard this answer. But here's the thing. And this is the thing where I think we need to start this series with because this is God's answer. Asking for God's justice should be a very scary thing for us. Asking for God's justice should be a very scary thing for us. Of course, when we see great wrong happening around us in our world, it's right to cry out, but it's also easy to cry out, Justice, Lord, bring justice and question God's timing and question God's method, Habakkuk's complaint might be very understandable to us. And yet at the same time, you should remember that Judah is under judgment themselves at that time, that they had so abandoned following God, being obedient to God, that they were under oppression for that reason. The northern kingdom had already completely abandoned following God. Judah was struggling to be obedient to God. And so God essentially is saying, who are you, O oh man, to judge me? Or perhaps in Jesus' word, we could say it this way, taking a bit of liberty here. God saying to us, take the plank out of your eye before you try to take the speck out of God's eye. Have we been unjust? As we exist in this world, have we let wrong go by around us without action? Of course we have. Of course we have. And by the way, I'm really wary of saying this because I know it is not our heart's desire to hear this answer. I'm worried it sounds a little bit like shut up, just trust God, don't question Him. And I don't think. Well, I know I'm not trying to say that, and I don't think that's what God is trying to say here. The beauty of the book of Habakkuk is that God honors Habakkuk's complaints. He doesn't guilt Habakkuk or shame Habakkuk in any way in his response here. He does answer Habakkuk's question and complaint straightforwardly. And again, like the book of Job, it's not the answer that we want, but it is the place where we must begin Do we stand over God in judgment to Him, or do we come humble as His creation, as His children, willing to submit to Him as the almighty, infinite God? I know we want God to explain why He does things the way He does, but honestly, if God did explain to us why He does things the way He does, do you think we could actually understand his reasoning? Even if we could understand intellectually his reasoning, do you think emotionally we could handle his answer? I don't think so. Maybe put it to you this way. It's like when I take the car to the mechanic, and I'm no good with cars. Some of you may be. But this is what it's like for me to go to the mechanic. I take my car to the mechanic, it's not working. And the mechanic says to me, Well, you know, your carburetor's really dirty. We probably need to clean it, maybe even replace it, you know, because you need to have that done. Because if you don't, the, the mixture of the air and the fuel is gonna be really bad, and you know, your car is gonna, your engine's gonna stall, or maybe backfire, or maybe it'll explode. And I'm just like, yeah, mmm. You know, trying to put on my best, like, yeah. That's bad, yeah, I totally get it. Yeah, let's, let's replace that thing. Sounds good. Meanwhile, what's going on in my head is, blah, 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 I'm so not a man, I don't understand a thing he's saying right now. I don't even know what a carburetor is. It's like I don't know enough about cars and engines to understand his explanation, but I can't even pay attention long enough to his explanation because emotionally I'm so distracted by feeling like my masculinity is being questioned. Maybe think about it this way. I watched a couple of documentaries recently about presidents, one on Barack Obama, one on George H.W. Bush, and I have to admit, these documentaries do a good job of getting a little window into what it's like to be the president. Mostly my reaction is, why would anyone want to be president? Why would anyone think they can handle that job? Because it just seems like such an impossible and difficult task to be able to handle the weightiness of those decisions, to handle the complexities of those decisions and the interwovenness of all the decisions you make, the breadth and depth of decisions necessary as a president, the possible ramifications that you're not even aware of when you make a decision. It's, of course, easy for us. To be the armchair quarterback, you know, pointing our fingers at the president saying, oh, that was not the way to do it. But most of us really know in depth just a few issues, and mostly everything else is a very superficial understanding. It's really hard for us to understand whether we like our president or not, the, 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 how difficult that task is. And if it's difficult for us to understand the difficulty of the task for a president, how much more complicated and difficult for us to understand the job that God does to be in control of all things and to work all things for the good of those who love him, this promise that he makes us. Do we understand what we're asking for when we say to God, God, bring justice now. If God brought justice now to each and every person, is it really going to be all right for you? Are you going to be able to stand innocent before God? Is he going to make everything right that is that is is wrong in your life without questioning anything that you have done. I don't think any of us would have such great confidence before God. We might think, well, God, I'm not as bad as a lot of people, right? It's a common defense. Now, it sounds good. It doesn't sound that good, but imagine you got caught for jaywalking and you went to court because you were going to fight it because everyone does it. So you go to court to fight jaywalking, and your defense to the judge is, well, I'm not a murderer. He's like, well, you're still guilty of jaywalking. All the evidence points that way. So off you go. Here's your fine. Like, The defense of you're not a murderer is not going to help in a human court. And yet that is our greatest defense often well, God, I'm I'm, I'm not as bad as other people. We should be very careful to demand that God bring justice now. God says he will bring justice, and he will bring justice in the most unexpected way. And what we find is God's answer is, in the end, and you heard it in Acts, Acts quotes Habakkuk, And Acts tells us that Christ is the answer to this question of justice. The cross shows us God's willingness to bring justice. He is a just God, and he will bring justice. But he loves us so much that he sent his one and only son to the cross to die for those who are guilty. We may demand justice because we're hurting, because we're suffering, but God says, I will bring justice in the most unexpected way, and that justice will go to my son on the cross, so that you might be forgiven and restored into relationship with me, and have hope for eternal life to live in glory with me forever and ever, and that I will wipe every sin away, every tear away, and I will make things right, but only through the work of Jesus Christ. Only by faith in what Jesus has done, trusting in Christ's righteousness as a shield around us, do we have confidence to demand justice in this world. And God says, be patient. God says he's patient Waiting for as many as possible to turn from worshiping themselves to worshiping the creator God who made a path back to him through the cross. At the cross we find justice. The most unexpected way do we find the answer to our question. And I hope that as you wrestle with your own questions and doubts before God that you first and foremost always start at the cross, where we see how deeply God loves us and how deeply God is committed to justice, that he would send himself to take the burden of justice. We'll continue to dive into these doubts and questions that we have along with Habakkuk, but may we always start at the cross submission to the God who loves us and who is just. Let's pray.